Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, which provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives. Why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals about how they achieved success in the face of adversity. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're talking to the Liberal Democrat leader, Ed Davey. Ed says on his parliamentary profile that he'd had a happy childhood with no financial hardships, but it was also one driven by such heartache that it's almost impossible to comprehend. And he was just four when his father, a solicitor, died, and his mother died when he was only 15 after she was diagnosed with incurable cancer. And he's spent so much of his life as a carer. As an adult, he's got a very severely disabled son, John, who's 16 now. And then his wife, Emily, was diagnosed with MS as well. But I found it fascinating that he says it's very different. So being a carer as a parent for a disabled child, he says there's nothing tragic about that. He absolutely loves John. It's just a different kind of parenting. Whereas being a carer for your mother really was tragic. When she died and I was by bedside, what really struck me was the pain left her and you could see it in her face and she'd been racked with pain for a long time and he left her so although it was a moment of shoe sadness it was a relief it was mm. a sense of relief i don't mm. know if I hope that doesn't sound awful but you know having nursed her for a long time and seeing the pain she'd been in mm. and and expecting it death is tragic for, for family whenever it happens but when it happens uh, unexpectedly then it's in a funny sort of way it's worse and mother prepared me there are moments when he talks about lying on her bed with her when she's dying and he does that at home and then in a hospital and and he's in his school uniform and he's chatting to her and he he makes it sound like he was just so unbelievably cared for and loved and adored by her. But she must have been thinking, I've got three sons that I'm leaving behind and that they won't have either parent. And he was nearly in tears from much of the interview. And you could see when he thinks mm. about the funerals or he thinks about caring for his son, that it's deeply moving for him. But not in a negative way some of the time. Some of it's because he cares so passionately and deeply for them. And I think we sometimes forget with politicians that they have had these lives, quite a lot of them, and that, you know, when you hear them all sort of screaming and shouting and bickering and, and you feel that, you know, Westminster's descended into chaos, these people have other lives. And I felt that particularly with him. I thought with Ed Davey, there must be a moment when you think that, you know, there's more to this, that, that they're, 
he's a real person and he's someone who's had real adversity and hardship and he also understands about being a carer and just how exhausting that can be. But then after his mother died, he talks about how he sat alone in his room, he was preparing to do his O-levels and he just thought, right, you're on your own now. Are you going to do this? What's the point of doing this? But you're going to do it for yourself and you're going to do it because you're going to make something of your life. And the only moment he said that he felt really that life was unfair was when his grandfather died when he was 18, wasn't it? That sense that he died very suddenly and he didn't really have time to say goodbye to him. But what you feel as a listener is your father's died, your mother's died, and then your grandfather's died, and yeah. you still managed to keep going somehow. Throughout my life, I have to say, I've always thought that people need to th see things in proportion a bit, mm. look at what's mm. most important. Mm. So it's not just in Westminster, you know, even at school, I just thought, well, I know that's really important about that song that you want to get a record of, but, you know, but in the debate in Westminster, I mean, so many... <laughs> people seem completely out of touch with reality. Mm. And it's not my reality, it's the reality of lots of people, right? So the thing about caring is there are millions of family carers. And, you know, people do it, they don't even consider themselves to be carers. They're doing it after the, the mother, the husband, the child. Their son. Mm. And you do it because it's the right thing to do and you want to do it. You want to do it. I mean, the thing that I worry most about is when I'm not there to care for my son. We started by asking Ed about the first few years of his life before his father died. Ed, you were born in Nottinghamshire and you're the youngest of three boys. Can you remember much about your father? Only little bits and partly really from what mum told me. Uh, so the image I have was him in the back of a car with a trench coat when he was ill when they came to pick me up from nursery school. So that's the image. Um, he wrote me a letter. What did it say? He must have written it a month or two before he died. So it was uh, something like, my darling Edward, um, just a little letter to you. Not much, but you can't read yet. Are you going to be a good boy for mummy always? Always do what mummy says. Be clever and good and happy. And be a credit to your daddy. Love daddy. So there's that, which obviously is particularly poignant for me. Then mum used to talk about him. And she'd always spoken about him going to play snooker at the local conservative club. So I'd sort of assumed he was a conservative. And there was this press cutting that I found while I was looking through a photo album with my grandmother. And I don't know why I hadn't seen it before. And it was um, from something like the Sutton Nashville Gazette or something. And it was uh, my father speaking at the Mansfield Liberal Association <laughs> in the mid-50s, talking about the NHS and how important the NHS was. So he'd come from a mining family, hadn't he? But he then became quite a successful solicitor. Was he very driven like you? Was he quite political? It seemed he might have been, mm -hmm. um, but he died aged 38. So in, in context, he came from a mining community in North Nottinghamshire. I think his family were builders. Um, but I have almost no contact with them. Um, he uh, went to university, so he was the first family to go to university, studied law, and then set up two law practices, one in Sutton Ashfield and one in Kirkby Ashfield, mainly serving the mining community there. And, yeah, he must have been pretty successful. The friends he made in business and through the law really were part of my life after he died because they, they were obviously uh, wanted to support my mother. And your mother was the daughter of domestic servants and she became a teacher. 
they sound like they had a sort of rather wonderful domestic life together. Can you remember what that was like? And was it very reassuring and cosy together? And did she feel that? Did she feel she'd had a happy marriage? Um, my mum and my father? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but just all too short. So my father had been doing national service and he was stationed near the teacher training college where mum was studying and there was some some dance and mum used to tell the story that he had a dance with someone else in order to get a better look at her (laughs) and then uh, had asked her to dance and uh, I think it was quite a whirlwind romance and he was a very handsome um, man and she was a very beautiful woman and uh, sort of fantastic uh, black and white photographs of their wedding day. He then got Hodgkin's disease just at 37. Do you remember him being very ill? No, I mean, I gave you that that picture of him uh, when he was ill, but I wasn't really aware of much of that, to be honest. Um, He was diagnosed in November and died in March. So sudden, yeah. Um, And it was sort of 69, 70. Cancer treatment hadn't progressed. Um, What's fantastic, Hodgkin's disease is something if you... If you uh, diagnose it early enough, you can survive it now. Mm. Yeah, survival rates are much better, but back then it wasn't the case. Mm. And um, you know, he had to put his life in order, um, uh, wills and writing letters and thinking about how mum was going to cope. Because, you know, she was widowed by age, uh, I think, 36, she must have been. And um, with three boys under 10. And did you go to the funeral? I don't think I did. And do you remember her telling you that he died? Do I have a clear memory of it? Mm. I remember a sadness in the house, a real sadness. If I'm honest, I was quite young and I I don't Mm. remember huge amounts of of that Mm. besides it being a sad time. Mm. And did you have to move house? Because it must have been very stressful for her suddenly just to have her teaching salary and three young children and try and cope in every way. Yeah, well, we did. When we had in quite a big-sized house in Sutton, Nashville, Bathwood House, it was called. Uh, and that was sold relatively quickly. But because my uncle, my dad's brother, was a builder, they built a little bungalow uh, in Nottingham, just relatively near the city centre, and uh, we had to wait for that to be built. Um, And uh, that made it all more affordable. And then we moved to to Nottingham, this new house, so it was like a new start for mum, much smaller house nearer the schools. Yeah, it was a clean break for her. You were so young, but did you have a sense of feeling protective of your mum even then? Obviously, I idolised her. She was amazingly protective to me, really. Things were a bit tight. You mentioned mm. finances. We hadn't been particularly wealthy, but my father had been pretty successful in a relatively short period, and he'd uh, put money aside for our education, and uh, it meant things were relatively tight. The widow's pension was really important to us, and I remember going with walking with my mum to the post office, getting the, the gyro check for the widow's pension every fortnight. I remember her saving money. Um, so we'd, um, she'd really <laughs> irritate me. I remember this bit. Uh, if she knew that the supermarket at the top of the hill was selling coffee 2p cheaper, we'd have to walk up the hill to get the coffee at <laughs> the top of the hill. And, and she experimented with home haircuts. There was a Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's like lockdown. Yeah, a bit like lockdown. <laughs> and there was a KTEL. I think in the early seventies, <laughs> a KTEL do your own hair device, and um, I remember that not working. <laughs> was it on you or on her? 
no one has. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she she was very careful with her money. And that only changed a little bit when she knew she was ill. And you were a very academic child. Did you have a desire to be a high achiever, do you think, because you wanted to make your father proud or help your mother? It's making my mother proud, mm. to be honest, despite what my father wrote in the letter. I mm. think it was my mother who I wanted to be proud of me. If I'm honest, it was a bit of a competition with my brothers. I was the youngest. <laughs> and uh, I needed to do better than my brothers. I saw what you could achieve if, if you worked hard. My brothers worked hard too, and they achieved well. And I was lucky in a way, as the, the youngest, I'd seen what they had done, what was possible, and I'd sort of inculcated their attention to studying and working. And um, I realised it made my mother happy. And you went to Nottingham High School and played lots of sport and music. And um, Did you feel there that you wanted to be normal and fit in? Did you want to be like all the other children? Or did you feel slightly different without a dad? A little bit different. But my mum had, had just given us such a security and stability. Losing my father, it wasn't a, a massive thing that I thought about every day. I, I sort of got on with things. The only time I really felt that was when my mum was ill, mm. when she, she went. That really, mm. and I felt, when she was ill at school, I felt a bit isolated from uh, friends because I was going back and dealing with her illness and caring for her. And I was a classic young carer in a way. Mm. and. Um, uh, and you know we were going through puberty, teenage years, mm. and no one else was had that going on at home. Mm. And I did feel a bit isolated and, and marginally, marginally bullied a little bit because I was a bit different. Mm. Of course. And she got breast cancer to start with, didn't she? Can you remember how you felt when she told you she was ill? Oh yeah, I remember where she told me and when she told me. Um, I think it was over Christmas, and we were. I was lying in bed with her and chatting, as you sort of do when you've been opening presents. Yeah. She wanted to tell me, and she told just me. She obviously told the others separately, but she told us each individually. Um, and she made it seem that it was going to be okay. Okay. And she had a mastectomy, and um, for a while it seemed okay. Um, but then the cancer returned to the secondaries on her bones. And then it, you could tell that she wasn't well. Did you feel really angry that somehow life had been incredibly unfair at such a young age that it must have felt deeply unjust in some ways that both your parents? I don't remember feeling anger about my parents, mm. to be honest. When my mum's illness, we, we used to we have a saying, we'll take each day as it comes. She was fighting it. My mum fought the cancer hard, I mean, really hard. So much so that when the NHS said they couldn't do anything more for her, she checked into an alternative uh, medicine approach and had all these so-called vitamins and, and special diets. And one of the things that she had was juiced apple and juiced carrot, and I used to juice this apple and carrot up mm. for her. It's very forward-thinking. <laughs> well, uh, maybe, but it's the naturopath cure. I think for a little while she got a bit of a lift, but she wasn't really getting mm. all the uh, vitamins she needed, and then she fell back, and we had to go back into the NHS care, but we knew right then it was not going to last much longer. Did you feel she was in a lot of pain? Were you really aware of the pain? Oh, very much. I mean, the, uh, the shocking thing about bone cancer is it's extremely painful. Yeah. Um, her, her spine crumbled, and so she was bent over. Um, she had what I guess is this form of sciatica very badly. Um, we had a bell jar of morphine in the kitchen. I don't think they'd allow it now. 
And did and you that, administer it? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was uh, oral. And how so old I, were you then? Well, I think she really became terminally ill in the sense that we knew that it was very, very serious when I was at 12. And I think the pain became quite bad by about 13, 14. So it was a lot of pain. Mm. And the other thing we had to do for the pain was, um, it sounds really, really odd, but she had these electric shocks. So you put these four pads on her and then she could administer herself electric shocks to offset the pain. So yeah, um, we were very aware of the pain and um, it was awful to, to see her in that pain. I think during the illness, you know, we held it together. It was only after when she mm. when she died that there were tears to be had. And we were very close, I became very close to mum. And I'd spent hours lying in my bed and talking to her. When she realised she was dying, she must have also realised you were going to be an orphan. You and your brothers were going to be orphans. Do you think, she, in a way, she was kind of trying to prepare you for that? Yeah, we never used that mm. word. Um, the only time that was used was by my headmaster after um, right. uh, my mother died. And when he stopped me in the corridor and said, uh, Davy, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. We've never had orphans before. Oh, no. I think we could do slightly better today, mm. I hope. It wasn't a great, a great uh, help. Um, How did it make you feel when he said that? I, I almost didn't know what to say because I realised that was like, on earth, why did you say that? Mm. Um, and I just walked on and I was not terribly happy. Did you talk to the teachers at all? I'm sure one or two of them knew about it, but again, I think they found it difficult. Mm. Um, the people I spoke to was my mum. Mum's the one who I spoke to. She prepared those. Not, you know, to be orphans, but about dealing with the illness and then gradually what would come after. Mm. And, you know, what we're going to come after, we'd be a family together. When, um, my uh, nana and granddad would look after us. Um, and that was the that was one thing. Yeah, this will partly answer your question. My nana and granddad, it was very tough for them because they were seeing their only child die in front of their eyes. And my lovely nana was, um, she found it very difficult and would fuss and fuss. And my mum didn't want her to fuss. So my mum would get a bit tetchy with Nana. And Nana would get a bit tetchy with Grandad, and that put strain on their relationship. And I remember writing an, an O-level English essay um, talking about this and um, uh, talking about how uh, my mum coped with it. And my teacher said he couldn't mark it. Because it was too painful. Too raw. Too raw. Did he try to help you at all? Really. I'm not sure they knew what to do. Did you find the tension almost the most painful thing? My mother preferred me looking after more than anyone else. Okay. Because I would go to a special effort to yeah. get the juices, the carrot juice yeah. or the apple juice as nice as I could. Um, or whatever it was. I mean, I wanted her to, you know, be well. Mm. And when you discussed things lying on her bed, what were the sort of things she was saying to you? Was it really life lessons and how to live? No, I don't think it was anything mm. quite profound. It was just how my day had been at school and what was on telly. And, you know, it was trying to be as normal as mm. possible. Mm. And the only thing I particularly remember, I'd been on a school trip to Germany and um, I'd taken a picture of a girl who I'd got talking to, a German girl, and I showed her the picture. And she said, um, I wonder who you'll end up with. 
I mean, so hard as a mother as well mm. not to know what's going to happen to your three boys. Yeah, I mean, you. my father wrote that letter not, not knowing what's going to happen. Did she write you a letter? No, she didn't need to. I mean, she just said had it so her. much time to get it. Mm. She just gave me strength. She really did. And uh, I think that essay, talking about the frustrations with my lovely Nana, who, by the way, fantastic, talking about that frustration, that tension, and then you went back to mum, and mm. it was the mum was the mm. one in the pain, and mum was the one facing facing death, and that's all that mattered, and she was all that mattered. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like being a carer? Because it must have been such a huge responsibility. Did you feel that weighing very heavily upon you? Do you have to do everything for her? Well, in the latter piece, not to mm. start with, I mean, it was an was evolution, right? As the illness got worse and as she went from walking with a stick to being in a chair. And there's my brother Henry and I, I mean, my eldest brother was away at either a year off at university, so mainly Henry and myself. And then my grandparents would come every day. So you didn't have any sense of resentment that you weren't able to do all the normal teenage things and go out to parties or... How could I resent my mother? Yeah. Because you've got on with it. You take every day as it as, as as it came. You just had to keep on because it was it was a bit relentless. I mean, there's a lot of lot of caring to do. It happened more when I lost my mum and I had to reflect on where I was going because I was no longer working to please my mum. That that was the moment. And I remember in the kitchen the weekend by myself in this bungalow, thinking about doing my O levels. And thinking, well, why am I doing this? It's not to please my mum anymore. And that's when I sort of felt, right, it's about you, mate. You're either going to do it or not. Are you going to do it? I sort of had a little chat to myself. Because you grow up so fast, mm. don't you, then? And she, there was a period when she was in hospital. Did you used to go then to the hospital? Yeah, I mean, that was really towards the end. Mm. And that must have been incredibly hard, being in a kind of very alien environment as a young yeah. teenager. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the two things. The first thing, she was put on a geriatric ward, which is deeply unsuitable. Mm. How old was she by then? 40s? Yeah, 46, I think. There were some elderly ladies suffering from dementia who would run around the ward, let me out of here. And there's my mum, and this was, she was near to dying. And that was didn't feel like the right place. And then I'd go and see her on the way to school. And actually, I was in my school uniform on the way, uh, and I sat next down to her, and she died. I was by her bedside when she died. Did she say anything to you before she died? No, she she was on so much painkiller. Mm. I mean, I, th I think she acknowledged me, but she was really out of it by then. And her head rolled to the side, and um, I knew something was up, so I went, got the nurse. And then they took me away, and then they came and told me that she died. And um, that was, yeah, that was a quite a difficult moment. So what did you do straight after? Who did you call? Did you, I mean, you were on your own. Yeah, I, I can't remember, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I presume they must have called the family. I can't even remember what happened. No. Can you remember if you went into school? I, I doubt mm. I did. I mean, you probably didn't know what to do, though. No, no. no. I mean, we then had to think about the funeral, getting all the family known. And Did you tell your nana first? I, I'm sorry, I can't remember. No. I mean, the, there's a bit of a haze that comes yeah. over. Um, it's not something I think about all the time, but, but it was a it was a, a moment where um, actually my eldest brother Charles took took over. 
he was the one who sort of came and sorted things out for all the arrangements, funeral arrangements. One thing, when when she died and I was by her bedside, what really struck me was the pain left her. And you could see it in her face. And she'd been racked with pain for a long time. Mm. And he left her. So although it was a moment of shoe sadness, it was a relief. It was a mm. sense of relief. Mm. Did you spend a few minutes with her then? Yeah. But at that moment, never forget, she prepared me so well. I knew yeah. it was going to happen. I was expecting it. Mm. And although there was a sadness, it was the moment, there was this sense of relief. And I don't mm. know, I hope that doesn't sound awful, but you know, having nursed her for a long time and seeing the pain she'd been in mm. and, and expecting it, Death is tragic for, for family whenever it happens, but when it happens uh, unexpectedly, then it's in a funny sort of way, it's worse. Because when my grandfather died, uh, my granddad, three years later, um, you know, quickly with a heart attack, that's when I got angry mm. because it happened so quickly. His wife, my nana, lost her own child and now is losing her husband. And that just like, mm. what's going on here? Yeah. Mm. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Ed Davey. And did you go to the funeral for that one then? And did you say anything? Did you talk about your mother? At my month's funeral? Yeah. No, I didn't. I remember the funeral mm -hmm. though. Uh, St. John's Carrington, where I'd been a chorister. We'd all been choristers at this church. Um, and I remember there was a thunderstorm during the funeral. That was so dramatic. What about for your grandfather? What was the funeral like for that? Did you feel that was just Well, we were just much? focused on my nana then. Yeah. It was all about her. So you keep ending up being the carer, don't you, at a very young age, because... She probably looked after you when your mother died, and then did you have to help out? Yeah, with I her? mean, she, this, my nana looked after me amazingly, mm. and she was again, she was strong. My brothers and I bought her a, a black Labrador to keep <laughs> her company, and that was her life. She called uh, this dog Imi her lifesaver, and um, gave her um, the ability to to love someone because she's full of love. My nana was, and then um, yeah, I started living 
initially after my mother died with my eldest brother. And then by that time I was going to university. Yeah, because I, I took a year off and I, was, did, I did a lot, quite tra- a lot of traveling um, directly after my mother died, lots of interrailing and hitchhiking and things like that. And after my granddad died, I did an interrail that summer. My, my grandmother baked me a big fruitcake and she put a, a little label on the top of it saying, take a knife. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's a bizarre memory to recall. Yeah. But um, my nana looked after me a lot and she, hopefully there was the fact that I was there and with her and indeed with my granddad because I lived with them, both of them. And what was died. he like? Very, very loving, but would hopeless at showing it. Hopes at showing it. <laughs> I remember him, he was a bit of a Daily Mail reader, and <laughs> uh, he'd shout at the telly when Arthur Scargill came on. So he may not have been liberal. I don't think he was liberal, no, but we <laughs> didn't really discuss politics. He just didn't like Arthur Scargill. <laughs> but he, he'd been in his garden the whole time. He just grew all these fruit and vegetables, and he taught me to drive. Uh, he was a lovely, lovely man. Do you think losing both parents at such a young age and then your grandfather as well did create some kind of drive in your political drive or, you know, a sense of independence? So Tony Blair talked to us about how his father's stroke had been a kind of spur to his ambition. Do you think that something in that? So many prime ministers, leaders have lost a parent. Yeah. I don't think I was really politicised at that time. Mm. I mean... The first sort of jobs I wanted to do, I wanted to be a, a writer. And I think for my 14th birthday, I got a typewriter because I'm old. I don't think it's a spur to politics. I think it's a spur to being determined to get on. I think it's you you know you've got to look after yourself. And, you know, um, you're a bit on your own and you've got to go and um, succeed if you possibly can. Um, I go back to that moment in that kitchen, which was a seminal moment, I think, for me, deciding that I was going to go for it. But I, did, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Right? So I'm not pretending I, you know, I'd written it all on a piece of paper and I knew how I was going to get into politics. Lib Dem leader. Yeah, yeah. No, that was definitely not like that. <laughs> it was absolutely definitely not like that. I was politically aware. Mm. Um, uh, I guess it started from my eldest brother, who was chairman of Nottingham Young Conservatives. My first political meeting probably was a, uh, a Young Conservative disco. Uh, but then I got into the environmental movement and the, the first sort of political campaign I got into at university was a group called the Student Ecology Group. And I rechristened it Green Action. Oh, branding, yeah. campaigned on uh, <laughs> potholes and recycling and things like that. Uh, I was a little bit involved in the anti-apartheid movement right. as well. And what was it like going, because you went up to Oxford, didn't you? Mm-hmm. What was that like? Because, I mean, you obviously it must have been even then very difficult to get into. Did you feel like it was a total shift from Nottingham or... No, because, again, both my brothers had succeeded well. So uh, my eldest brother had gone to Oxford and my uh, middle brother had gone to Cambridge. So, it, again, it wasn't alien to me. And I was lucky because they sort of had shown the way. The odd thing, actually, I felt in my going up was I, I hadn't done my reading. <laughs> I had a year off and hadn't read at all for it. And I suddenly found I was doing economics and I hadn't done economics A-level, I hadn't done maths A-level and all everyone else had. And I thought, I can't do this. I've come to the wrong place. So I had to study hard. And eventually I realised what economics was about, just another language, really. Uh, then I was fine. It didn't feel too alien. I, I think I was a bit more mature than some of my people. I had a year off and I'd had my background. And I felt slightly mm-hmm. out of place, I'll be honest with you. And I found one or two friends who got me through that 
initial period at university. Wasn't Ed Balls in the year below? Ed Balls in the year below me. Did you know him? On... A little bit. Mm. I was he more mind. political than you? No, we, 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 there was a debating society and you debate stuff, but you, it wasn't really party political then. He might have been a bit more. He was a Norwich City fan. That's what I knew about him. But I didn't really know him very well. I mean, the thing that we we would joke about was Ken Clark had been at the school obviously a long time before, and he was taught by the same history teacher, Mr. Peters. So there was that sort of similarity across across the political parties. Mm. So the school uh, had uh, representatives from all the political parties, which yeah. was quite something. And did you ever think of yourself or talk about being an orphan at all or not? No, never. It's a very brutal word, isn't it? Yeah, I don't like it. Mm. And the, 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 i tell you one of the reasons I don't like it is because I knew I was loved mm. completely. And that sounds very Dickensian an orphan, doesn't it? It sounds like yeah. someone's been abandoned on this. Yeah, and mm. I wouldn't have been abandoned. They, they mm. were taken from me. They didn't abandon me. Mm. And I had loving grandparents and brothers. And I didn't, you know, it, it's yes, it's tragic to lose your parents. Of course it is. But um, I benefited from being loved mm. and being in a... You know, particularly my mum's amazing parenting, uh, giving me a stable environment. Were there moments when it was just particularly poignant? So, for example, at your wedding, you married Emily in 2005. Were there, did you think then, just feel that sadness that your parents weren't there, particularly after what your mum had said? There have been moments throughout my life where yeah. I thought, I wonder what they think of me. It would be mm. nice if they were here. Um, but it's not a daily thing. No. Just very, very occasionally. The marriage is absolutely the birth of my children, yeah. becoming an MP. There are sort of moments when you think, I wish they could be here for this. Um, I obviously wish they could meet my wife. And your son, John, was born with a rare neurological condition, which, when did you first realise there was something wrong? Was it instant? No, it wasn't instant. Um, I think after about three or four months, we thought he's not developing like we imagined, but we thought he was, you know, delayed development and no one seemed to be worried about it. Uh, and then gradually as it kept going on and he wasn't able to sitting up and, uh, and making the sorts of eye contact and noises that you expect, we realised it might be serious. Mm. Uh, and then about around the time he was one, he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy, which he doesn't have. So there was, because they, they, they couldn't diagnose it fully. Was that a Great Ormond Street? Or? Um, he, he is treated at, at Great Ormond Street now, but I don't think, I think that was probably the local hospital because we started off at St. George's. We realised it was not great, but we were offered in terms of help, a six-month waiting list of physiotherapy and a 12-month waiting list for occupational therapy and speech and language therapy when he was one and he couldn't talk. And we thought, that ain't going to work. Uh, we tried a private physiotherapist and we weren't that impressed by what they, how they're approaching John. We thought it was cerebral palsy, we weren't sure. And we, by the way, we don't have a diagnosis now. But we had a Hungarian au pair and her father's doctor. And over Skype, he looked at John and said, why, do you, why didn't you go to the Peto Institute in Budapest? And so I did some research, looked at all the different things that people would do for cerebral palsy. Most of them looked highly dubious. Mm. I went to my GP uh, and he said, look, yeah, I've heard of the PETO. Try it out. It's not a crazy idea. And it was in its non-invasive, non-surgical, non-pharmaceutical. So it's a no regrets type approach. Mm. And so in the January, when John was 13, 14 months, we were in the PETO Institute. How long State. for? 
I think we were there for the was it week first of all. We stayed in a hotel paid for by British taxpayers <laughs> when before the wall came down, paid for by Diffid, and opened by Princess Diana. Okay. Uh, following a, a, a panorama program which showed the Petto Institute back then, um, so it was bizarre. Mm. You arrive and opened by Princess Diana. Mm, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, what was interesting was both Emily and I felt that the way the people at the Petto, they called themselves conductors, mm. they called it conductive education. The way they handled John and talked about him, we thought, we trust these people. Mm. They get our son. And it was quite painful to start off with because the exercise they were doing on his arms were essentially taking the, the muscle had begun to attach itself to the bones. So it was quite painful for the first two, two, three days. But the 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 care and love they did, they dealt with him and their attention to detail washing him made us feel very confident. And did they realise that he hadn't got cerebral palsy? No. Um, well, they did eventually. In mm. fact, they realised it before um, the NHS did because they could tell when he was about three or four. So before, the, before he was five, we'd go there three times a year. And my amazing wife would, we'd take notes of all the things they did to help John. And then my wife would turn it into programs herself wow. to exercise him. She'd exercise him for five or six hours a day. That's extraordinary. It is. She's, she's an amazing woman. Mm. She, taught him, she taught him to crawl by for two years, holding his tummy and standing over him and getting to move one arm and then one leg and then one arm and one leg. Because the conductive education idea is you're retraining the brain. Right. Sometimes you do it to music and to song, but you do it by repetition. And he learned to crawl because of my wife. But it sounds as, as actually it's a physical thing, so the muscles aren't there to... No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's the brain. It's, it's neurological. It's entirely so, neurological. Um, uh, Great Ormond Street have diagnosed, uh, not diagnosed it, they've identified what's wrong in his brain. Mm. So his cerebellum is smaller than it should be. He has, he has less white matter in his brain than he should have. And that means that uh, he can't really walk. He, he can now walk aided, but he can't walk over by himself or fall over. Mm. He, he couldn't talk at all, um, besides a few odd sounds, and he managed mummy relatively early on, but not oh. much else. Um, and then when he was nine, he said, Daddy. That must be astonishing. It was a very special day. Very special. And day. how much caring did you do at the beginning then? How much could you, did you spend well, weekends was, and evenings then helping? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Emily took the lion's share mm. and did an incredible job. But I was there. I, I, whenever, I think I would go whenever we went to Budapest in those early years. Um, it was a balancing act because obviously being an MP and then uh, being in government, uh, that was you know, mm. had its mm. challenges. Mm. Um, and then often she'd fly out and I'd fly out there for the weekend uh, and bring them back. And she'd go out there with someone to help her. Uh, yeah, that was pretty pretty intense. But, you know, when he was small, you know, children are a little easier to care for when they're small, when they've got physical disabilities. Now he's 16. It's, uh, it's more hands-on, mm. so I have to do quite a lot of the, of the care, particularly in the morning, getting up. So what do you have to do? Does, do you still have to exercise him every day? Or? Yeah, well, he starts off with a massage every day. Mm. So get him up. Um, he wears a nappy. So I deal with that, wash him. And then um, he has a massage, starts about half an hour, which we learned from the petto. 
and um, that keeps him supple and means mm. he doesn't get all rigid and tight. Some of the time we have a carer come and help us because um, often, you know, I'm busy and mm. I tend to do the, the first bit of the shift, assuming I'm not doing some very early immediate round, <laughs> um, and then hand over. But he needs, he'll, and unfortunately, he's going to need 24 7 care all his mm. life. The key is giving as much independence as possible, which is keeping him strong so he can bear weight, trying to make him what I call toilet independent, because I'd love it that he could take himself to the toilet and deal with that, because mm. that's about dignity and independence. And also improve his speech such that he can make himself clear to someone who's not his uh, immediate family. Mm. What are the fun things that you do together? Oh, loads of fun things. We have such a fun time. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got the best laugh in the world. So swimming, he loves swimming. We go splashing, splashing, splashing. Uh, tricycling, he's got his tricycle. It's um, a fold-up tricycle. We take it everywhere on trains and planes and cars. So we have tricycle rides. Um, uh, he does rock climbing. Uh, someone holding the rope. <laughs> he climbs right. He does horse riding. We have a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, he's he's learned to play the guitar, but strums it, shall we say. He's not really playing. And how uh, much language does he have now? Way more. I mean, we, we, we started at two special schools, but it didn't really work. And we didn't feel they were getting the best out of him. And particularly, he was nonverbal. Mm. And we, we had this belief that he could be verbal. Mm. And so we ended up agreeing with the local authority that we'd educate him from home, which saved them a lot of money. Um, and teachers would come in, and therapists would come in. Right. With Emily sort of managing it like a head teacher. <laughs> we initially thought he'd be nonverbal and we'd have to go and learn Makaton. Well, we'd done a bit of Makaton, sort of sign language. And then we were thinking about asking the local authority to do a group Makaton so he could go and socialise. So very conscious that educating someone from home you need to make sure they socialize as well mm. but then quite quickly he started talking i mean not in a conversation mm. like this and and not well pronounced words mm. but he was beginning to be able to process language and he's come on you know he'll have full sentences now and sometimes they make sense and sometimes <laughs> they're in context um but that doesn't matter is he quite demanding yeah, well, he wants his daddy, he wants his mummy. <laughs> wants his food. He wants his food. Like any sort of teenager yeah. in some ways. Yeah, I mean, he, he's got a healthy appetite, but um, he wants, he, what he really wants is his iPad. <laughs> that is very <laughs> yeah, teenager. Yeah, you like, limit screen time. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do limit screen time. <laughs> yeah. um, and he wants to you know, now play guitar. He has, he's had a fixation with Henry the Hoover. He likes hoovering. Oh, yeah, that's quite. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and his train set listening to horrible Henry, lots yeah. of things that kids do, but it's obviously not what a 16-year-old would do because mm. he's got these, I think, fairly pronounced learning disabilities as well. And did you ever talk to David Cameron when you were in government together because he had mm. a child either? Very, very briefly, but not in any detail. I was suggesting that Petto was a good place to go to. And did you feel, though, that you were both caring at the same time, that it gave you a different dimension to your politics in some way? Uh, I think if we talked uh, for longer, it might have done. Mm. But I, I'm not going to pretend we had a long conversation about it. Um, I did remember when he was Shadow Education Secretary, he was talking about special needs. And uh, I was getting involved in those debates because mm. I have a view about 
how we need to manage special needs better than we do at the moment um, and support families better, listen to families better. Yeah. Do you think it's changed your politics, your view of the NHS, your view of the education system, having a Having son? John? Yeah. Um, yeah, to an extent. I mean, what I like about going back to Budapest and the Hungarian approach, they're very can-do. They don't accept things. And there's a some, not all, people in this country want to sort of wrap people in cotton wool rather than try to give them more independence. And, um, you know, sometimes that makes sense for some children because the key thing you cannot generalise about special education needs or disability. Mm. You cannot. Mm. It's all different. Uh, and um, every child's very special and you need to think about what works for them. Do you feel, is it very different being a carer as an adult for a child to a child for an adult? I mean, there is a sort totally of parallel, thing. isn't there, in a way, but also not? Yeah, I mean, um, got to remember, uh, it was more tragic for my, my mother's case. Yeah. Um, uh, whereas I don't see it as tragic for my son. He's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And we have great times. Mm. I mean, uh, Emily wrote this book about having a special needs child and, said, look, you, you think you when you have a child, you're on a plane to Venice. You're going to Venice and have an exciting holiday. But what happens is that the, the, the plane is diverted to Brussels. Right. <laughs> and After you, Brexit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going there. Uh, but, you know, you then have to bring the child up in Brussels. And it's a Brussels experience, yeah. not a Venice experience. And you've got a daughter too. And I do. And What's that like? Because it's different having a son to a daughter sometimes. But also, she must have different wants and needs. And Oh, she does. But she's a young carer too, don't forget. And a, a brilliant one. We don't, not doing the, the, the yeah. personal care stuff, but just being part of the family and dealing with John's needs. How old is she? She's nine. Nine. Wow. Uh, and um, you can just imagine what... The father thinks of her. <laughs> uh, the mother thinks I'm not very good at discipline. <laughs> Does she want to go into politics? Oh, I doubt it. No, um, I keep saying, well, you want to come to, to my offices and my where I work? She's not very keen. I think for the moment she sees as politics as taking um, both Emily my, mm. and me away from her because Emily's a local councillor um, uh, on Kingston Council and... Um, um, Doing a brilliant job there on housing. She's a housing expert. I mean, the, the Emily and I met each other on the Liberal Democrat Housing Policy Working Group. <laughs> and he, That's he, a very Lib Dem. Yes, you can get more. You, you might think we should get out no. a bit more. And then your wife got ill. How did yeah. that happen? And can you just tell us a little bit about it? Because she's now in remission, isn't she? Yeah. Well, we had a suspicion before we got married that she might have MS, but it wasn't fully diagnosed. The doctor said she might. And then when her father died, she clearly had an attack. Actually, the peto diagnosed it, got into treatment here. And she improved quite rapidly after that initial attack, but was aware that this was a condition in this sort of two forms of MS, progressive MS, remitting MS. And she's got remitting MS and has managed it brilliantly. The lockdown during the pandemic was the biggest negative and because she wasn't exercising and so on, I think it hit her quite badly. And so her walking has been hit much more. So she walks with a stick now. But she's, you know, she's very active in the care. She's active in the council. She's astonishing. You've had so many difficult things to deal with. You must sometimes look at Westminster and think, this is sort of trivia, the gossip. 
must give you a perspective on that where you just think this is so pathetic. Yeah, I, I mean, throughout my life, I have to say, I've always thought that people need to th- see things in proportion a bit, mm. look at what's mm. in, most important. Mm. So it's not just in Westminster. You know, Even at school, I just thought, well, I know that's really important about that song that you want to get a record of, but you know, but in the debate in Westminster, I mean, so many people seem completely out of touch with reality. Mm. And it's not my reality, it's the reality of lots of people, right? So the thing about caring is there are millions of family carers. You know, I don't know what the different figures sometimes say it's six million, sometimes it's ten million, it's a lot of people who are looking after loved ones. And sometimes it's a temporary phase where they end up dying or they get better sometimes it's a lifelong caring but loads of people are doing it and um i just think these family carers people who look after loved ones they're just almost forgotten in the Mm. system it's one of the sort of afterthoughts and they just term unpaid carers aren't they as if they don't really feel that close to the person they they're they're doing it's sort of menial job yeah i really don't like that term Mm. that's why i keep talking about family carers and you know people do it they don't even consider themselves to be carers. They're doing it after their the mother, their husband, their child. Their son. Mm. And you do it because it's the right thing to do and you want to do it. You want to do it. I mean, the thing I worry most about is when I'm not there to care for my son because no one's going to care, care for him like I, mm. I do. Mm. And what about your daughter? Do you think she will? She probably will because she's lovely and she's a very kind person. But... Um, I don't want to have that expectation. So when I think about the future, I think about, I hope they have a great relationship. But it's, it's not fair to ask her to you know, put her life on hold. Well, I particularly think about it. I mean, I think sometimes I find it difficult to talk about that. Mm. But uh, you have to. I really thought about it a lot when I lost my seat, actually. So when I lost in 2015, having me on this sort of, the treadmill of politics and then reflected about where I was. Then I really thought about the future for John, particularly the financial future. Mm. Who's going to look after him, how it's going to be paid for, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that's another big issue that we don't debate, but there are so many families, particularly parents with disabled children, special needs children, who that thought must be with them the whole time. What mm. happens when I'm gone? Who's going to love them? Who's going to look after them? Mm. Who's going to check they're okay? Mm. It's why I'm so obsessed about getting John as independent as he can be. Because then, you know, it's not just his sister or other family members who will be looking out for him, but John will be able to say, no, that's not right. Mm. What do you think your greatest legacy will be in politics? Do you want to try and change the NHS, carers, or is it the Lib Dems in the end that (laughs) (laughs) that you want them to do sort of as well as they possibly can? Well, all of that. I mean, I have things that I'm passionate about. Obviously, carers in the NHS has always been big and big for my father, apparently, in the 1950s, at the environment. But the overall thing is, and this is what marks Lib Dems out, I think, we want to change the system because there's loads of problems. I think our political system is just not really very geared up to dealing with them. I think it's very short-termist. I think it doesn't force people to look at the facts look at the evidence, analyse it properly, and I think it's getting worse. Mm. So, you know, all the Liberal Democrat institutional reforms that we've talked about for years, I think, are more relevant than ever. If you look ahead, you look at care, you look at 
the aging population, you look at climate change, you look at the changing geopolitics, the rise of China, all that stuff, massive big stuff. And I'm not convinced that our political institutional framework is well geared to tackle these issues. The party system needs to push people to work together more and to reflect on it and not just look for the, the next short-term hit that will get them the next good headline. So you obviously suffered from the coalition, you lost your seat. Do you now regret going into coalition or actually is that what... Lib Dems should be doing, celebrating that kind of cross-party alliances? Well, listen, I mean, Lib Dems believe parties should work together. It follows from what I've said, but that's sort of who we are. No one has a monopoly on what's right, and it's much better to sort of come together and try and think things through. I think that's the, I think what the public want us to do. And so, um, you know, when we got to the coalition, uh, it seemed sort of the right thing to do. It was quite difficult for me because the Tories have always been, always been my opposition. I'd always... Uh, fought against them and um, and they weren't natural uh, bedfellows, but we sort of had to make it work. We sort of knew it was going to hit us politically, but we sort of felt it was a duty. And, you know, we achieved some great things. I'm really proud of some of the stuff we did, you know, uh, increasing the income tax allowance, taking the lowest paid out tax, the triple lock on pensions, mental health, same-sex marriage, renewables, lots of things that I'm really proud of would not have happened mm. if we hadn't been in government that period. So... Um, you know, uh, yeah, it was it hit us, but I think we've got a, a record of achieving it. And what do you wish you'd known that day, sitting there in your school uniform next to your mum as she died? I wish I'd probably had a bit more self-belief and trust in myself. You know, I've, I've uh, I guess with the uncertainty and security that came from that time, I, I've, I've sought certainty, I've sought, sought stability and security after security that my mum gave me when it wasn't there and um, I guess I had a lot of self-doubt about whether I could achieve that mm-hmm. and um, I think I've begun to trust myself more as I get older uh, uh, and I've also put in coping mechanisms to make myself feel more able to, to deal with what's around the corner you know, uh, obviously family and friends um, great work colleagues I mean I I think I think I build teams. I did to get elected. I've done when I was a minister. Uh, I do now as leader because you can't do it by yourself, and you need people. And that's that's I think being more self-confident, feeling I can trust others because I'm now more at home with myself. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Ed Davey. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.